So we're in Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out the wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is in the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Thanks, Aaliyah. All right. Well, my name's Evan. And my wife, Sandy, and I have the joy of leading this church forward with a fantastic team. Um, Again, if you're new, welcome. If you're not new, if you've been tracking with us, you're like, why did we just read from Isaiah? I thought we're in Matthew. You're right. Aaliyah just read from an ancient love song that was written 700 years before Jesus by a guy named Isaiah. Um, It's really old, and it shaped Jesus's culture. That whole prophetic book of Isaiah had a huge impact on the world that Jesus lived in. Uh, Isaiah was probably the most well-known prophet, may have been, of Jesus' day. And his primary concern, his main concern, 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah was concerned that Israel was leaving God's covenant. They were taking matters into their own hands. They were refusing to live in a way that was just and fair and right, and they were oppressing one another, and all kinds of bad stuff was going on in Israel, and and God was, his heart was breaking because God had rescued them from slavery. You remember Exodus and Egypt and Moses and the baby in the basket story. God rescued them from slavery, and, and now they're living as though they don't want God anymore at all. And so Isaiah writes them this love song, this love song from God, and it's a song, it's, a, it's, it's got metaphor and picture in it, and it's a song about someone lovingly coming into a vineyard, digging a hole, moving the rocks aside, and saying, I love what I'm about to do. I love this place. I'm gonna make a vineyard that's gonna have fruit, and I'm gonna love the fruit, and it's gonna be beautiful. It's my precious land. And it was a symbol for God preparing a land for Israel hundreds of years before Jesus. I rescued them from slavery. They were poor, weak, oppressed people, and now I give them their own homes and I give them a place to thrive. And God had special loving interest in this vineyard project of Israel. And how does the song go? Uh, Next slide, God comes looking for fruit, but he finds bad fruit. It says he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. And for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. He looked for the good fruit, but only found the bad. They were tormenting each other. They were oppressing one another. And it says three times in this love song, God was looking for, he was searching for, he was aching for. It's like he's like deeply committed to these people, deeply committed to the well-being. He's not like a helicopter parent, like morally policing his kids, just expecting them to follow rules. That's not this, God. God is like, look, he's like holding up the vineyard, like these are supposed to be choice grapes. I'm supposed to get a really good vintage out of this. I love this land but it's all rotten. And so uh, this is a God who cares. He's not just a helicopter cop with a big, like, not that helicopter cops don't care. You know what I mean. He doesn't just have a spotlight on the vineyard. He's down there with his hands dirty with them. And so God's looking for, like, what's the fruit? What's the fruit he's looking for? Right relationships in the community. Like, generosity and forgiveness. Kitchen tables where husbands are forgiving their wives and wives are forgiving their husbands and the kids hear a loving tone of voice. Like he's looking for peace between neighbors, peace between everyone in the community regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, or class. 
because this is what it means to flourish as God's human family. This is what it means to flourish. Like God wants right relationships in the community. And so what does he find? He looks for right relationships, the good fruit, but in Isaiah's love song, he doesn't find any of that. This ancient love song, 700 years before Jesus, God doesn't find any of that. And as a punishment that Israel brought on themselves, they're dragged off into exile in the foreign land of Babylon for a whole generation. It's very tragic, very tragic story. And Jesus now in Matthew, now we're, this brings us to Matthew. So Jesus covers the Isaiah love song like he remixes it. He puts out a remix of Isaiah's vineyard love song right now in this passage. And it's brilliant what Jesus does. Look at Matthew 21 if you have a Bible. Uh, It's on the screen if you don't. Verse 33, Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Yes, this would have sounded extremely familiar to Jesus' hearers. They knew Isaiah's stuff, and Jesus is riffing off of it. And he says, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. This sounds familiar. This is that love song. And Jesus is saying, you are the vineyard. Jesus is making a direct appeal to their culture. This, this vineyard that God wants, it's still what he wants. He still wants fruit to fall from this tree. Uh, and he's making one really huge important point. This is the point he's making today for us, Park Hill. This is why we're here. This is the fruit God craves. Obedience that leads to right relationships in the community of God. That's the fruit he craves. And I chose the word craves like intentionally. There was some debate amongst our teaching team. Why do you pick the word craves? It sounds, well, because you could say desires, like God desires this fruit, but then you don't get like the, urgent demand of like, like a craving. <laughs> like uh, this, is, this is both desire and require put together. Like I need this, I love this, I want this with the fiber of my being. And what does he want? He wants obedient actions that lead to like right relationships here. Not just rule, fo- rule following. Um, but, but the obedience that leads to just, fair, shalom, peace in the community. Um, and so the way Jesus tells the story is, is the vineyard owner sends servants to collect the fruit because God wants the fruit. Super pumped about it. He craves it because what happens when that fruit's on the vine? It means his kids are thriving. It means his kids are being the, the, the human family that they were designed to be, flourishing in their relationships. But what happens? History repeats itself. History repeats itself. Look at verse 35. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one. The servants were there to collect fruit, but they beat him up. That's kind of like in, extreme, I think. <laughs> like someone comes to get fruit from your thing, you're like, let's beat him up. I don't know. There's some, there's some serious dysfunction going on in this vineyard. Because the servants come to collect fruit and they just get, they get pummeled. Uh, they beat one, killed the other, and stoned a third. That's not like pot. That's like with rocks. They stoned, they threw rocks at one till he was dead. These people had an issue with the vineyard. They were like super possessive about it. And so then he sent other sermons, sermons, sorry, servants. I'm preaching a sermon right now. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, look at this, he sent his son to them. And he said, they're going to respect my son. And what's Jesus doing right now? He's giving Israel's leaders a history lesson in their own history. In their history, God sent servants to say, hey, God wants fruit. God wants right actions that leads to peace in the community. God wants this fruit. But they shot the messenger so many times because they saw the vineyard as their own. They wanted wanted their own mitts all over it. They didn't want to give God back the gift 
that he gave, okay? And so they're, they're busy, you know, with sexual impurity. They're not caring for the poor, the widows, the orphans. They're not generous. And, like, prophets, messengers from God are like, stop worshiping the gods of sex, money, power right now. Because when you do that, the community doesn't thrive. It, de- it de- deconstructs and disintegrates, actually. The relationships run, a- run amok. They don't thrive. And so stick to the covenant, you guys. Stick to the covenant. Bear the kind of fruit he craves. Uh, and, and then, now, Jesus' parable, the vineyard owner sends his kid. He sends his blood. Who does, who does this blood son represent? Good, Jesus, yeah. That one's easy. That's an easy church answer. Get it right half the time if you just say, Jesus. <laughs> so, like, and now watch how Jesus tells the story. Watch how Jesus finishes this story. And remember the setting. This is Passover week. For the Jews. This is like Christmas week mixed with 4th of July, Independence Day. Like, this is a big deal. Um, and this is the week Jesus is going to be crucified. So this is like the Tuesday of the Friday he dies. So this is a big week for Jesus. And Jesus finishes. He says, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come. Let's kill him. Take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, Jesus asks a question. He, now he asks a question. He's done telling the story, and he's like, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to them for killing the son? And they're like, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. <laughs> So do you guys see the irony here? Like it's thick. The irony is super thick. Jesus is talking to Israel's leaders about them. He's talking about them to them. And, and, he's, and he's asking them, what do you think the Father will do to people who reject the Son, me, as they're rejecting him? And he's like, he'll kill him. He'll kill him. And, and Jesus is way more mature than to say, gotcha, I'm the son, you're going to die or whatever. He's way more mature than that. Look what he does. He quotes, he quotes another song. And this is Psalm 118, which is one of the, get this, this is so brilliant. Jesus is a genius. We forget that. He's like so brilliant. He quotes one of the six songs that would have been on repeat in the background in the temple during Passover week. They sang the six Hallel songs on a loop all Passover week, ending with Psalm 118. (laughs) And so Jesus quotes Psalm 118 with the music for it. We lost the sheet music. We don't have any more. So with the music for it in the background, just to, just like, this is street theater at its finest right now. Jesus is using all the elements. And, And so he quotes. He says to them, have you never read in the scriptures... There's the next slide, I think. Wait. I think it's the slide before that. He says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone, the builders, yeah, that's it. The stone, and here he quotes a psalm. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the song going on in the back. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I just made that. I wrote it just now. I demand copyrights. Uh, The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's like, haven't you read that as it's playing in the background? He's brilliant here. He's brilliant. Because whenever you see a New Testament quotation of an Old Testament passage, it's a hyperlink. Double click, ding, ding, and you get the whole passage in your brain. That's how the Jews saw this. And so what is the whole passage? To sum it up, get this. It's brilliant. Psalm 118 is about some man who goes through tons of suffering because of his enemies, and at the end of it, he passes through the suffering, and God raises him up and delivers him above his enemies as a champion. And to describe this victorious man in the psalm, the the author of the old song uses the metaphor of a rock. A rock that a builder says, eh, not good rock, trashed. 
But God sees the rock and goes, actually, that's the best rock in the universe. He is my champion. I'm going to put him on full display. And so Jesus is just messing with all of their paradigms right now in a beautiful way. And here's a picture of the cornerstone. I think you have a picture. There it is. So that's the actual cornerstone that would have been sitting there in Jesus' day. That's the actual one. It's still standing. Um, I've been to this spot three different times. Uh, It's the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. Those giant rocks have been there 2,000 years. Uh, Jesus most certainly walked by that corner. Like the Jewish Jesus we worship, physically with sandals on, walked by that corner like 2,000 years ago. It's amazing. Um, They're 15 foot long interlocking stones uh, that were commissioned by King Herod, the same King Herod that killed all the two-year-old baby boys in Bethlehem, trying to get rid of Jesus, but obviously failed. So those right there, because they're in the corner, they would have been considered the best stones that were mined because they had the least blemishes. They're the best. So let's put them on display. Let's show all the sides. That was the idea. Everyone will see how good this stone is. So Jesus is quoting from a psalm about this cornerstone man who the builders go, "Mm, nah, rejected. But God is looking at the same man and he's like, this is my selected champion that the builders rejected, but he will become the cornerstone of the universe. And so Jesus is making a huge statement about himself. He's telling Israel's leaders that because they are rejecting God's heart for righteousness and because they refuse to obey and because they're even rejecting the son himself, because of all of this, guess what? Their ship has sailed. Because they reject the son and they reject the way of Jesus, their ship has sailed. Judgment is the only thing they have to look forward to now. Jesus is hardcore right now. We like to think of Jesus as like hippy-dippy peace, like love your neighbor only ever, that kind of guy. He is all of that and more. He's all of that and more. He also pronounces judgment. He's the only one qualified to. And he pronounces judgment finally on those that reject him in this moment, Israel's leaders. See, look what happens next. Here's the judgment, verse 43. Now put that slide up. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. There it is. So to sum up, Israel's job was to steward the vineyard. They were the tenants. What's the vineyard represent in the parentheses there? It's God's kingdom. It's God's whole kingdom project. So... Israel's job was to steward the kingdom. How? By bearing the fruit God craved, which is what? Obedience that leads to right relationships in the community. Israel's job was to bear that fruit, and Israel's leaders botched the job, and as punishment, Israel loses the kingdom. They lose the kingdom. So history is repeating itself, right? When that song was written 700 years before Jesus, they got dragged off to Babylon and lost Jerusalem. And now in Jesus' day, what's about to happen? Do you guys know Israel's history? 40 years after Jesus, what happened? It's like so, so tragic and violent. Yeah, the Roman emperor Titus came in, leveled Jerusalem, and brought the temple down to smoldering nothing. That generation saw the end of the temple. The temple is no longer, that physical stone temple is no longer the headquarters of the kingdom of God from that generation. It's tragic. But, but, listen, and this is where it hits home for Park Hill, for you, and Neighbors Church as we plant her. There's a huge silver lining on this, huge, because this is the moment in Matthew's gospel that we see a massive shift in the way God moves in the world. In this moment, Jesus is saying, from now on, God's kingdom will be given to a new people. Like, 
Like, it's amazing what Jesus does here. What Jesus does here is amazing. Here it is. From now on, God's kingdom will have a new building, an entirely new temple structure built on a new cornerstone. It's not a physical rock anymore. It won't be built on a stone that Herod dug out of the mountain. Now, the new foundation stone is not a stone, it's a sun. The Hebrew word stone is eben. The Hebrew word sun is, take off the eat, ben. Jesus is playing on words here. No longer do you have an eben, now we have a ben. A sun to build this building of the headquarters of the kingdom on. And it's me, Jesus is saying. And what, what's, what's the building on, Jesus? What's the building? It's this new headquarters of the kingdom that is you and me. It's no longer a physical temple. It is a global, multi-ethnic, multicultural, many-colored, many-aged, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave-free, all are one in Christ. It's this thing called the church. It's this thing called the church. God no longer has a physical temple for his people, but he has a people for his temple. That's where he lives. This is the shift. This is where he makes that shift. It's an amazing moment in history, in the history of how God works with humans, okay? And so Park Hill Church, Park Hill Church is part of that new people right here. We're like one of the latest iterations of this. We're one of the latest branches on the vine of the vineyard of what God is growing. This is how we fit into this story. We are a new vineyard that he's planting in the soil of San Diego. And he loves this soil. He loves the soil. Jesus loves this city. He loves San Diego. God loves this city. I don't know how often the church sends that message to its civic leaders. I don't know how often Mayor Faulkner here is the church saying, guys, I just want to send your offices an email. God, Jesus is so pumped about San Diego right now. Like, this is true. And, and to prove it, he's building his house here through living stones called followers of Jesus in the church. It's amazing what Jesus is doing here. For 2,000 years, God has been rebuilding a new people group around his son. And we are that new covenant people who stay true to the covenant to do what? To bear fruit. To bear fruit as his vineyard. is so profound and powerful because now Park Hill, in this beautiful building, we're located in God's history. Like we, we see ourselves on the timeline. I think we get disillusioned when we stop seeing the vision. Hopefully you see it right now. We're part of this story of God like speaking through space and time to save the world. And we're built on his son. God is planting his vineyard in San Diego through you, through me. He's planting his vineyard right here. And so this leads to the announcements I was talking about. <laughs> There's really concrete ways that Jesus is planting his vineyard and he's by providing for us. He's providing for Park Hill and neighbors with like practical things like, like teaching tables and chairs and chair rentals and like PA systems. And so... Uh, this is exciting. Jesus is deepening his community through us in three ways, three practical ways, and these are worthy of like celebrating, okay? Number one, number one, after a ton of prayer and patience, we just found out, we found out Park Hill Church will be gathering on Sundays here in this building indefinitely. Like, this is... Like, so basically, this is where God has called us to be, to, to ground ourselves. So now we can, like, envision five years down the road and be like, this is where we'll be. This is who we are. This is where we're called. That's, we haven't been able to do that, you guys. It's a gift. Um, so we'll, we have the option of renewing our lease here every six months for as long as God wants us here. And this means, like, consistency. <laughs> Like, consistency, please. That's so awesome. Like, we haven't had that uh, except until this year, which is amazing. Um, so with, with church planting in major cities, I don't know if you've ever been part of a church plant, like, from day one. Oh, man. One of the most difficult things is finding a consistent, 
space. Like in church planting classes or whatever, they joke, space really is the final frontier. Like, <laughs> it's like if we can just get a space, we can do stuff. And uh, we kind of have, we don't have a week-long space, but we have what we need right here on Sunday. Uh, so so which, which leads me, hey, you guys, be praying for Neighbors Church. This is what they're praying for. They're praying for a consistent space to be planted and grow and bear fruit from. Um, so you might be like, what about the original building? How many of you guys remember at 594, like the original building? Some of you are like OG, which is only 16 months ago. It's funny that that's OG. But uh, so, so you might be like, what about the original building? Uh, for those of you that don't know, we started out in this like, um, should I say derelict, like really nice, like but old kind of, it's I love the vibe of it. Um, there was always a conversation that we'd return there, but that conversation is done. We are here. We are now moving forward, full steam ahead in God's plan for Park Hill Church here. More and more communities are forming here. Relationships are like networking and intertwining in beautiful ways here. More and more uh, older, wiser, mature followers of Jesus are starting to come. Listen, Praise God for you. Like, like, we need you. Older, wiser, seasoned, spiritual, spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers. We desperately need you. And you're, and you're really kingdom parenting of us. We need you. So, and, and God is providing in that way. Um, he's doing something pretty amazing. Co- college students, young families, and all of that. Like, is, God is building this in this place, and now we're consistent. Tell me that's not exciting. Like so, so speaking of young families, here's the second way God is planting his vineyard more deeply here. Starting next Sunday, April 7th, we are expanding to two kids' gatherings. So both 9 and 11, both. Up until now, it's just been the 9 a.m. Now, if you have your little, if you have your little one here, um, they have a place to be, which is amazing. That's amazing. So I'm pumped about that, and so are my kids. They get to tear it up twice in a row now. So this is God planting his vineyard. And if, and if you feel called to be part of that, that, that ministry to the children, this is an opportunity uh, to teach kids and to be there for them, uh, twice as much opportunity, which is connected to the third way that God is building this thing, that he's planting his vineyard more deeply. And it is this, we now have... Four new classrooms for our kids. <laughs> you guys, that's, I, I want to thank you parents. Listen, if any of you are parents here and you've had your kids here, thank you for dealing with the system we have. <laughs> it is so less than ideal, and I thank you for your patience. If you look out across the way, like across the, the promenade concrete slab where the ice rink is in December, uh, there's a building called the Command Center. That command center is just a few hundred feet away, and we now have four like awesome, safe, secure rooms just for K through fifth grade, uh, nurse, nursery even through fifth grade. Um, there's like flat screen TVs in there, and there's private bathrooms for each room, like just for kids, and separate bathrooms for volunteers, which is so good and safe. Love that. You guys, it's incredible how God has provided, like seriously answering our dream prayers for our kids. So needed. Um, so, so very concretely, permanent space for Park Hill for the long haul. A growing launch team for Neighbors Church. Expanded, safer space for our kids to thrive and be taught in the way of Jesus. Like that's amazing. God is doing this. He's building his, his house. He's building his temple out of us, and he's planting his vineyard, that's us. So what do we do about that? Like, how do we respond with gratitude? How do we celebrate the God who is planting his vineyard through us in the city? According to Jesus, we do that, we should do that, by bearing the fruit he craves. That's the message today. That's the point. He's doing this. He's providing. He's giving us gift after gift after gift. What do we, what's our responsibility? Like Psalm 116, what do I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? You bear the fruit he craves. 
You bear the fruit he desires. So the question then becomes, what does that practically look like? What does that look like for Park Hill? Um, So for that, let's jump to the end of Matthew, right here on the screen, Matthew 28. This is Jesus' parting words for his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. (laughs) So teach them, how do we bear the, teach them to produce fruit. And that's another way of saying teach them to obey everything I've commanded. This is what we do. As a matter of fact, like if you go on to our website now, parkhillsd.church, you'll find a new section, <laughs> a new page about. <laughs> you can click on about now. <laughs> so you can click on about, and then you have three options. You can see, you, soon you'll be able to see the staff. The pictures are coming soon, so that one's not operational. But there's mission and vision. And the mission is the same mission that the church has had ever since the beginning, and it's this great commission. Baptizing and teaching people to practice the way of Jesus. And the vision is what does that mission look like five years down the road if it's realized? It looks like the kingdom has come in San Diego as it is in heaven, that's the vision. So, so right here, we have our mission. God is building this thing. What do we do about it? We bear the fruit he craves, how? Teach them to obey. Everything I say, that's our marching orders. Teach them to obey. Practice, this is, we've said this since the beginning, practice the way of Jesus fully all the way down with your whole life in partnership with the Spirit who empowers you to do that successfully. So we've been in the, okay, so we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for how long now? Like over a year Like, how much of that time have we specifically been unpacking Jesus' teachings? A lot. Good and correct. We've we've spent a lot of the time unpacking Jesus' teachings. I mean, 11 Sundays in a row, starting Easter 2018, was just the Sermon on the Mount. And that's all Jesus' teachings on how to live practicing his way in your space. So we spent a lot of time to this. And another word for this is how to bear the fruit of the kingdom that he craves because it means we're thriving. Uh, and just, just a short list of the fruit he craves. Right here, justice. That's action that leads to right relationship and justice. Like, that's action. And forgiveness. And all this leads to right relationship and, and sexual integrity, generosity, fasting, prayer, and then extreme loyalty and love toward God and those around us, even our worst enemies. All this is the fruit God craves. And, and Jesus' apostles, after Jesus left, his apostles would go on to unpack what it looks like when churches do this stuff. And Paul was one of the most, probably, he was the most prolific New Testament author, and he wrote uh, specifically to specific churches, what does it look like to bear the fruit he craves in Colossae, in Ephesus, in Corinth? And he wrote letters to them, to their specific issues. And um, in Paul's language, the language for this is be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's the same thing as bear the fruit God desires. Be filled with the Spirit. For Paul, this means, there's a slide here, I think. For Paul, this is what it means to be fully human, to be bearing fruit, to be filled with the Spirit. It's all the same thing. It's to live the way God created human beings to live, flourishing together in relationship with God, others, self, and the rest of the world. This is what it looks like for Paul to be filled with the Spirit, okay? And so here, here we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna get super direct. I'm gonna try to bring this all the way down to like the one foot level for us. Um, I'd like to speak directly to an issue The leaders, the elders at Park Hill, they all agreed, we all agreed together that it's time to speak directly to an issue. Um, That we see 
wreaking havoc on the fruitfulness of the kingdom, not just because you know, God likes rules, but because he delights when we thrive. And when we thrive, we have a witness to the world of how beautiful God is. And, and we destroy that uh, through, through, through ways that we abandon God's command. So, uh, and before I get into it, I want to assure you that I'm not just getting up on my soapbox here. Because in one of Paul's most well-known passages, one of Paul's most famous passages of being filled, when he talks about being filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5, it's very interesting to me that in this big moment where he's like, hey, church, bear the fruit God desires, be filled with the Spirit, he holds up being filled with the Spirit, and of all the things he could contrast it against, he, what, what, what does he say? Be filled with the Spirit. Don't, don't get drunk. <laughs> That's actually what he says. Like he actually pits those against each other. Of all the things, he could say so many other things. But it's interesting, so interesting to me that when he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, those are the opposites he presents. Yeah. Okay, so now here, here's this, okay, Christianity and alcohol, never been controversial, right? So, so like, I have like three minutes to talk about it. Is that cool? Yeah, great. Easy, easy. So, so I am, I'm going to address it. Here's what we have here. Um, first of all, first of all, you will not find a prohibition anywhere in the Bible that says consuming alcohol is sin. You will not find that. You guys with me on that? I mean, actually, it doesn't matter if you're with me. It's true. It's just the case. <laughs> so so what, what, you, what you will find is actually the exact opposite. Psalm 104, for example. Psalm 104 talks about celebrating the gift of God's human family, being able to cultivate the harvest of the ground, and being able to enjoy oil on food and wine on the table, which gladdens the hearts of humans. The psalmist writes, I love that. I love that. And when Jesus was celebrating the creation of a new family at a wedding, a male-female coming together in Cana near Galilee, what does he turn water into? Not grape juice, you guys. <laughs> he turns it into wine. Um, so when the Bible does talk about alcohol, it talks about its potential to become something beautiful and always connected to the celebration of the good things in life. It's beautiful. But there are just as many passages that while they never prohibit drinking, they absolutely warn against the abuses of alcohol. And Ephesians 5 is one of them. Proverbs 31 is a really intense one, actually. It talks about it's not for kings to stare long at the glass because they might forget what's been decreed and oppress the weak. It's a powerful verse. Um, because for some people, enjoying a bottle of wine at dinner with their friends or going out for a drink is actually a way of celebrating their friendships. Celebrating when, when like a Manhattan is done really well. It tastes awesome. And you're just like, yes, Jesus. And, but also, celebrating craft beer. Like, all oh, this is a beautiful way to enjoy the culture of our city. So for some people, this behavior might just be a way of thanking Jesus for good taste and friendship in, in San Diego. And for another Christian, the same exact behavior might be completely foolish. Like utterly, utterly destructive and foolish. Because of that person's unique story or alcoholism and patterns that run in the family or because they know that their temperament tends toward addictive behavior or because it's like, I know I'm in a tough season in life and there's a temptation right now to have another and then you, you're, on your, you're suddenly on your third and because I don't, know, I don't know how I feel about my life or whatever. Or I, just Google how alcohol affects your brain. Like what alcohol impairs is exactly the part of your brain that allows you to wisely think through the consequences of your actions. Um, and we know this, we know this. You know, you've, you've Googled, like, what's going on to me right now? What, what's happening to me? Alcohol effects on the brain or whatever. <laughs> like, we've all done that. So, like, and we, 
In other words, you don't need a brain scan to tell you that getting drunk makes you dumb. You, we know this. We know this. So it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Paul's point, if I'm a fruit-bearing Christian, if I'm a new kind of human, if Jesus has taken up residence in my life, then there's this whole realm of freedom open to me, and I'm becoming a new kind of human that is actually saying no to influences that are going to dehumanize me. I'm saying no to things that make me less of the person God is making me. That's the freedom. That's real freedom. To say no to the stuff that makes you less human. This is what God wants. This is fruit. It's not just rules. It's human flourishing. It's flourishing. And so, so for some of us, I'll, I'll say for some of us, that dehumanizing influence might be alcohol. So Paul doesn't say don't drink. He says know who you are. Don't get drunk. So we, like, this isn't the royal we, like Evan's just saying we. You know, this is like the elders of Park Hill Church, the Bragas, Persley's, Wickham's. Um, we agreed that in a church like ours, like majority single folks who enjoy a great night out together as Jesus followers, which is awesome and great, but in a church like ours, we agreed that this needs to be addressed in this time. So as your, as your friendly neighborhood pastor, like <laughs> as your friendly neighborhood spider pastor, I'm, I'm getting to know, I'm getting to know a lot of you around here and it's awesome. I'm getting to know, I don't know a lot of you very well, but I'm starting to see how a lot of these relationships fit together and where everyone like does life and how it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's so, it's rad, I love it. Um, and I do know that there are a lot of people around Park Hill Church who are celebrating their freedom. <laughs> They're celebrating their freedom because that is a big part of God's heart. Like Park Hill is centered on both grace and truth and freedom in Christ, absolutely. And within, within that, there are a lot of people around Park Hill who just straight up drink too much. And I mean, if that's you and you're here and you're just like, Holy Spirit, is that me? Like, you know, you know, like, you know. And so I want to urge you as your pastor, that is not the way forward. Drinking for the buzz is not the way forward. Like into becoming the kind of spirit-filled human that bears the fruit God craves in a community that is deepening as God is planting her. It's no coincidence that Paul holds them as opposites. Don't be drunk, but be spirit-filled. It's not a coincidence. In fact, one of the most, I'll just get super practical here, one of the most significant moments in your spiritual journey might be, not like to get all legalistic and be like, I'm giving up alcohol, everybody should give up alcohol. Not like that or whatever, but to say, you know what? I'm gonna take a break for a while. Maybe you just need to say, you know what, out of reverence, out of reverence for Jesus and his authority in my life as the cornerstone that I'm built on along with my spiritual, like I'm, a, I'm one of the many stones in this house and I'm submitted to his authority. Out of that reverence, I'm gonna let the spirit be the primary influence in my life and I'm just gonna call it six months. Like starting right now, just gonna take a break. That might be the best thing ever you, like, no need to hold anyone else to that. But for me, you might say, out of devotion to Jesus, I need to do this. To make sure I'm not being influenced by alcohol in a dehumanizing, unhealthy way, I wanna be filled with the humanizing spirit of God. And actually, today would be a great day to make that kind of decision, because it's day one of seven. Like, it's a day for literally putting things aside that hinder us from fully focusing on what Christ wants. Today's day one of seven, a week of prayer and fasting as a church. If you're wondering, what do you mean by fasting? Dan Braga last year did probably the best sermon I've ever heard on fasting. You can look 
uh, in springtime of last year when we were in Matthew 6. Um, and then we had Kelsey Peterson, who's a nutritionist in our, in our, in our church. She came and did like a 20-minute Q&A with me and Sandy on the podcast. You can listen. We asked, well, how do I, should I fast with an eating disorder? That was the question we addressed. Very good. She's very wise. So if you have any of those kinds of questions, you can dig into our podcast archives. Um, but this is a good week for this. Like where we're joining together with other churches across the city to pray that God plants his vineyard more deeply and more fruit is born through the soil of San Diego in our submitted, obedient, like loving lives. Um, so half of Park Hill's leadership team is fasting from all food for all seven days, including me. So starting tonight, uh, next thing I'll have to eat is Saturday and I'll be drinking water and like hot tea with no honey like all week, and praying that God's kingdom would further come into my family's life and in our church. Um, yeah, we'll be gathering at a different location every day of the week, sevenprayer.com. For more info, it would be amazing to see you there. Tonight is at Bethel Seminary Chapel. Tomorrow night is right here. Super easy. You know where this is. Um, and again, again, this is all about becoming the kind of people <laughs> who are bearing the fruit of the kingdom that God craves. So this is the challenge for us. What's the point of practicing the way of Jesus? It's to bear the fruit. That's the point. It's to bear the fruit he desires. And so I want to land on one really tragic but beautiful warning that comes out of Jesus' encounter with the leaders, these, these wicked leaders. What made them wicked? They didn't know they were. What made them the bad guys in the story? They had a mindset where, the, and this is it, this is it. They actually believed the vineyard was their own. God's like, I'm here to collect fruit. And they're like, let's, we're gonna beat, beat up these silly, like, what are these people doing here? I, no, this fruit's ours. And then the son came. He's like, we're going to kill the son and take the vineyard. They actually had a mindset. They thought their lives were their own. This is where this all starts. This is where we get off from the beginning. Like, it's the mindset that prevents us from obeying the teachings of Jesus. So what is that for you? Maybe it's like, Maybe it's manifesting in party culture or getting drunk or being sexually involved with someone you're not married to or not being generous with your money and not giving a, a care about the poor or whatever. Whatever it is, the mindset behind all of this is that we actually begin to think that this vineyard, this life, belongs to us. We forget that we're all being invited to bear fruit in Jesus' vineyard. This whole world, this whole thing belongs to him. The kingdom and the power and the glory, it belongs to him, belongs to God. And, and, and it's gift, it's gift. And in the teachings of Jesus, when you, when you read the teachings of Jesus and you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you get this deep sense that Jesus is grateful. And he's so grateful to this person that he calls a very generous father. That's Jesus' name for this God who gives everything. This very generous father. And you get the sense from Jesus that the clothes you wear, the flowers in the field, every inch of your height, every breath that comes out of your lungs, it's all gift. It's all gift. It's all, it's all this, this blessing from God. And, and, and what do we know about gifts? Every gift comes with a responsibility. Like, there's a reason why my three-year-old son gets a toy car for his birthday, and my 16-year-old son gets a driver's permit or whatever. There's a reason, because with every gift comes a responsibility, and the responsibility for the gift of life that human beings have been given, and Jesus' followers recognize it comes from God. The, the, the responsibility is to bear fruit. That's it. That's why we practice the way of Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we wake up. It's what gets us up in the morning. And this all begins when we receive this gift of life as just that, a gift. None of this belongs to us. Your life is not yours. My life is not mine. 
So we're going to come to the table now and we're going to reflect on one question. Learn from Israel's leaders' mistakes and recognize who is the giver behind all of this gift of life. And ask yourself this, honestly. Let's invite the Holy Spirit in this question. It's on the screen. Is there an area of my life I've been viewing as my own? Like maybe it's that relationship with that person and you feel it's your, you feel it's your right not to forgive. Or maybe for you it is party culture or getting drunk or maybe, and, then, and maybe that, that's led to a host of other issues and complications, which it usually does. Maybe it's sexual integrity or lack of generosity. Jesus had so much to say about what we do with money. Whatever it is, somewhere along the way, you stopped honoring God with your freedom. What is that area? What is that area? For me, 2 a.m. panic attacks, I realize, oh, oh, I'm viewing my responsibility to succeed as a pastor as my own. And so someone sends in critical feedback or whatever, super personal, panic attack. Oh, it's not mine. And so there's this, there's this phrase that I was given by a mentor. I'm gonna give it to you, and we're gonna say it together. So here's the statement. I want, I want us all to speak over that area. Just say, my life is Christ's. Nothing else matters. So hold that relationship or that addiction or whatever that is. Just hold that out in your mind's eye and in your hand and just maybe close your eyes and take a deep breath and just say, my life is Christ's. Nothing else matters. Can we pray that together out loud, all together? My life is Christ's. Nothing else matters. Apply this truth. One more time. Apply it to that area of your life. My life is Christ's. Nothing else matters. Amen. Can we stand?